Welcome to the Experts Only podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital, where we explore the intersection of energy, innovation and finance. Our host is Clean Capital's co-founder and former Federal Chief Sustainability Officer, John Powers. Learn how Clean Capital is revolutionising clean energy finance and find more episodes at cleancapital.com, iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Welcome to this week's episode of Clean Capital's Experts Only Podcast. Today we have a fascinating conversation with Kate Brandt, who is the lead for sustainability at Google. In this conversation, we really talk about how tech can be an enabler for sustainability and talk through some of the challenges and opportunities Kate sees working for Google, one of the, lar- the largest corporate procurer of renewable energy in the world, and what they're seeing across their facilities, like their data centers, what they're doing with their data in agriculture and other really interesting spaces. Kate, thank you so much for joining us on Clean Capital's Experts Only podcast. I want to talk to you a little bit about your journey in sustainability. You've had a really unique career track from Brown University, the Obama campaign, working at the White House, the Pentagon, and even at the Department of Energy, and now, of course, at Google. Can you talk to the audience a little bit about your personal journey and you know what motivated you to want to be in sustainability? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks so much for having me on the podcast, John. So it's great to get the chance to talk with you. So it's great to be here. So on my journey, you know, I really trace back my interest in this space to where I grew up, actually. So I grew up here in Northern California in a small beach town called Muir Beach, the namesake of John Muir. And I got to grow up spending a lot of time outside, was in a community surrounded by national and state park land, and I developed this really deep appreciation for the environment and conservation. And so it's something that I've always really had a a longstanding passion for. And when I came up through undergrad and grad school, I got really interested in the topic of energy security and climate security and the role of natural resources in foreign policy and national security issues. So after grad school, I, I worked on the Obama campaign in Florida and moved to D.C., was very lucky to find a place in the Obama administration early on and started at the White House in the Office of Energy and Climate Change, and then moved over to the Pentagon, where, of course, we had the chance to work together. Absolutely. And I was the energy advisor to the Secretary of the Navy, and and through that work, you know, really got to dig in on energy security and climate security, how we were fueling the fleet, looking at advanced biofuels, but also working on sustainability for the Navy and Marine Corps' 100 military installations around the world. And there really got to cut my teeth on not only energy and natural resources issues, but also, you know, how are we thinking about water and waste and the fleet and procurement? And so that's kind of where I really fell in love with the sustainability work and then was lucky enough to go on to be a senior advisor at Department of Energy. And then, of course, lucky enough to succeed you at the White House as a federal chief well, sustainability officer. you had big shoes officer. to fill there. Right. I had huge <laughs> shoes to fill. It was a tough job, John. <laughs> no, but standing on the shoulders of giants, as I always say. So. I think, you know, it's, I'm going to get into some of the work you're doing at Google, of course. And, but before doing that, you know, I think you worked for one of the real true leaders, Secretary Mavis, who came into the Navy at a time where much of the military, you know, I saw this when I was working at the Army, had no energy policy, right, or, or some developing climate policy. You know, you really saw it go from that to establishing gigawatt goals, and and now we're seeing power purchase agreements that are saving hundreds of millions of dollars to taxpayers. Talk a little bit about what it was like to see that firsthand and working with someone like Mavis and 
you know, how to take those sort of high level, some could say almost impossible to achieve goals and actually achieving them. Yeah, it, I felt so lucky to be able to serve at the Pentagon, you know, when I did and when we did. So I, I started there the end of August of 2009, and, and Secretary Mavis had recently become the Secretary of the Navy. And it was so interesting talking to him about how he initially got focused on this issue, because as you point out, it hadn't been as much of a focus prior to that time. And he has such an interesting background. He was a Gulf state governor, governor of Mississippi. He had been the ambassador to Saudi Arabia in the Clinton administration. And then as he was preparing for his confirmation to be the, the secretary of the Navy, the issue of energy security kept arising, and he, you know, as he would tell it in all of his briefings. And he saw that this was just a thread that ran throughout and that this was an area that both really posed a potential threat and risk, but also that there was a huge opportunity and really carrying on the very long tradition of how the Navy has really always innovated how it powers the fleet, you know, going from sail to coal and coal to oil and then nuclear. And now we've also, you know, moved towards biofuels. And I think that there's a great tradition, of course, of innovation in the military. And I think there was this huge opportunity to also innovate around energy and how we power our forces. So it was a tremendous time to be there. And, you know, as you'll recall, a time when policy got a bit stuck right. on Capitol Hill with cap and trade, when there were some disappointments that happened during the climate negotiations in Copenhagen. And it was really powerful to see how the Department of Defense really picked up the mantle and drove a tremendous amount of innovation. As you point out, you know, the three gigawatt commitment across the three services, the commitment that was ultimately met to certify all ships and planes and other military vehicles on advanced biofuels, and the tremendous amount of work that was done to really drive sustainability strategies across military installations for basically small cities. So I think it was a tremendous amount has happened, continues to happen, and it was an honor to be a part of it. So, you know, I've talked to before about the difference between an entrepreneur and an entrepreneur. You've worked in major bureaucracies like the Pentagon, I think would some would argue probably the biggest bureaucracy in the world. And now you're working for an amazing company. I mean, you've gone in and helped disrupt them, but why do you see yourself as an entrepreneur and what lessons can you share with the audience about what you found that's worked doing that? Yeah. You know, I've always liked working inside of big organizations. You know, as you point out, I've been at the Pentagon, you know, and the role that we both had at the white house, you know, worked across all the different federal agencies. And of course now at Google, we're a 72,000 person company around the world. And I think for me, there's a huge amount of opportunity when large organizations such as these really are motivated to drive change around sustainability, around clean energy, their impact can be tremendous. And I feel really lucky that I've had the chance to work on clean energy and sustainability issues inside of these large organizations that, that really can move the needle. You know, the of course, the Department of Defense is the largest energy user in the world. And by that token, so is the federal government. You know, at Google, we've been able to do incredible things as a corporate renewable power buyer. So I really feel lucky to have had the chance to work inside of these large organizations that can really have, you know, tremendous positive impact when it comes to the environment. Yeah. So let's talk about impact a little bit. Google, I think everyone is obviously very familiar with Google. And if you're not, then you probably not listen to a podcast anyways. What is the role of these large tech companies who are really leading the charge on sustainability? You know, why is it unique and why do you think they can make an impact? Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons that I got really excited to come and, and do this work at Google is that we both get to work on sustainability issues, both from an operational perspective, 
but also we really get to sit at this intersection point between technology and sustainability. And so I, I think in both instances, there's a huge amount of opportunity. So, you know, on the operational side at Google, we've been at this truly since our founding 19 years ago. So we just celebrated the 10 year anniversary of operating as a carbon neutral company in really? 2012. Yeah. Yeah. So this was the 10 year anniversary. So back in 2007, some very bold and you know inspiring leaders we had inside the company said, this is the way that we should be operating. We want to be completely neutralizing our impact on the planet from a carbon perspective. So laid out this strategy, sort of three part, of course, first focusing on energy efficiency. And we have this very longstanding practice of designing our data centers, which are really kind of the core of our footprint, we have 14 data centers around the world. So we've been really focused on designing those data centers from the ground up with efficiency in mind, all of the systems inside the data centers and the computing itself, the servers themselves. Also, really, with a deep interest in renewable energy. And of course, back in 2007, when we set this goal, we didn't have access to the kind of large-scale renewable purchases that we've been able to make since then. But we still had that ambition. We knew we wanted to run on renewable energy as much as possible. And then lastly, carbon offsets. That's also always been a part of our strategy. So you know, fast forward 10 years. We've been at this for a long time, and, and we were also able to announce in December that this year, in 2017, we will reach our 100% renewable energy goal. So at Google, of course, we have the tremendous opportunity for impact through our operations. But also, like I said, to really think about how can technology be an enabler? And so, you know, a couple areas that I think are incredibly powerful. One is cloud computing. So there's been some really powerful research that's been done by UC Berkeley and others about the power of switching from, you know, running your email and your docs right. off of a locally hosted server. You know, we've all seen these server closets, you know, down the hall with the flashing lights and putting all of that work into the cloud. And so this study that UC Berkeley did basically hypothesized that if every U.S. office worker shifted over to the cloud, we'd see 65 to 85% reduction in energy and carbon emissions associated with computing, enough power to power LA for a year. And that takes into account so the, really huge the demand opportunity. need for new data centers to address that? Yeah, yeah. So really a powerful case for the efficiency associated with cloud computing. And then also, we are, of course, very excited about the role of AI and machine learning, and, and we've been experimenting with that in, in our own operations. So we have done some work applying a machine learning algorithm to our data center cooling systems. And we had a great young engineer that started as a side project. We have these things we will call 20% projects. So it's guy, Jim Gao, he said, hey, I'm really interested in machine learning, took a class on the side, pitched a 20% project and started investigating machine learning for the data center. And a big part of the energy use in the data center is cooling because servers get really hot. You got to keep them cool. And we had been focused on optimizing that process, you know, since we started building data centers over 10 years ago now. But with the machine learning algorithm, once it learned all the systems and how to optimize across them, we saw a 40% reduction in the energy used to cool the data center and 40%. overall 15, yeah, for cooling and an overall 15% reduction in the energy use of the whole data center. So tremendously exciting outcome, obviously, for us, ability to be even more efficient to pass that efficiency on to our customers, but also, I think, really gives you a window into this huge potential opportunity that, that machine learning and AI presents for the environment, for, for sustainability. So I'm just going to double down on what you just said, because I think noting from something you actually said earlier this month, 
you take that and marry it to some of the projections that have data centers consuming as much as 13% of the world's electricity by 2030. We look at machine learning and clean capital, but in a different way, but in a way that it can really drive reduction across that, that demand is incredible. So I'm going to talk a little bit more. I'm going to move off of energy, even though that's something I, I am very interested in, but don't want to leave without talking briefly about the 100% renewable energy goal you guys have had. And obviously, the fact that you're hitting it is amazing. Can you talk just a little bit about how that's happening across sort of the corporate procurement process and how you guys are managing that? Yeah, so we have an incredible team that is dedicated to purchasing our, all of our power, both brown power and green power. And we are now the largest corporate purchaser of renewable energy in the world. So since 2010, when we started working on this, we've signed 20 agreements for a total of 2.6 gigawatts of energy. So that's about as much power as it takes to power the city of San Francisco for a year. So very wow. you know, significant commitment. And you know, we've calculated kind of emission savings equivalent to taking about 1.2 million cars off the road. So massive undertaking. And in 2012, once we had been at this for a little while, we said, you know, we really think our aspirations should be 100% renewable. And, and frankly, at that time, you know, as we all know, there was not a clear path to get there. This was really a moonshot goal for us. But both through, you know, our team really doing incredibly innovative work in power purchase agreements, as well as we have a fantastic policy team that really thinks about how do we use our demand to help drive positive change that makes um, clean energy more accessible to everyone. And so they've worked on green tariffs. They've worked on other policy structures. And, you know, here we find ourselves in 2017 and we're, we're poised to reach our 100 percent renewable energy goal for our global operations. So what that means for us is we really see this as, as a major milestone. This is our first 100%, but also we don't want to stop here. So this milestone that, that we'll reach this year means on an annual basis, we're purchasing as much renewable energy as we're consuming globally. And where we want to move towards is what we kind of think of as our next 100% of also consuming the same amount of renewable in the regions where we're operating so that we have a closer connection to that renewable More localized, power. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. And then ultimately, we're really interested in how can we get to the point where we're operating 24-7 on clean energy um, at our data centers. So obviously, a much more ambitious goal that we're really just in the early stages of digging into. But we also, as much as we want to celebrate this milestone, we also feel like there's a lot more work to do. And we have a great team to, to carry that forward. So for an audience note here, I am going to talk to Mike Terrell from Google at some point about the policy effort around this because it's pretty amazing. That's great. Mike, if you're listening, you don't know this yet, but you and I are talking about this. We were just on a panel together recently. because it's, That's fabulous. Yeah. And Michael's a crucial member of the Google team and has been, been at this for a long time and has done some really groundbreaking work in the policy space. So let's flip out of the pure energy piece. And I want to talk broadly about sustainability because you guys have so much cool things going on. But before doing that, you know, you talked about these ambitious sort of moonshot goals that Google has not only set, but in many cases achieved. You know, how does Google internalize the leadership at the company to achieve those goals, right? It's one thing to say, we want to get this done. It's another thing to actually achieve that moonshot. Yeah, I think, you know, the thing that I've found really powerful about joining this team, you know, I've been at Google for a little over two years now, is just how much our value around sustainability and how much our focus on it has grown up inside of the company that has truly been a focus for us since our founding. 
And I think what's really powerful about that is that sustainability has grown up inside all of these different parts of our business. And as we you know, have grown into an over 70,000 person global company, we have dedicated sustainability teams that are embedded in the key parts of our business that are doing this work. So whether it's our, you know, on our real estate team, our data center team, our consumer hardware team, we have people that are focused on doing this work. And so when we set these goals, I think we really want to be ambitious, but we also feel like we have the partnership with the business to really achieve them. So one of the goals that we set more recently that I think is also a moonshot, but that we're actually really making some great progress on is to reach zero waste to landfill operations for our global data centers. So I mentioned, you know, 14 data centers around the world. This is kind of the core of our operations as a company. And we said, we really want to do this in a way where we're using a zero waste to landfill goal to really innovate how we think about materials, how we think about closing loops designing waste out of our systems. So we have made some really good progress towards reaching that goal already. We're at 86% now, and we have one data center in prior Oklahoma that's gotten there. But this has been equally a really important journey for us and really connected to our focus on the circular economy and how we really change our relationship to natural resources. Fascinating. I mean, it's interesting for folks that haven't visited the site, you should go to environment.google, which sort of highlights a lot of the amazing stuff that you guys have going on. And and hearing that you've got sustainability teams embedded across the different business lines is is helpful because when you look at environment.google, you're touching so many different spaces, right? Whether it be using data to track illegal phishing. Uh, We've already talked about sort of machine learning and data centers, obviously the renewable energy piece, but you know, what's going on in Google cafes with localized farming, or I think the, I want to talk a little bit about the healthy building efforts and what's happening within your own facilities, but then how you're also sort of working to take some of that knowledge and share it across other sectors. What do you sort of see, you know, because there's so much happening there, like what is your greatest challenge sort of just implementing across such a broad strategy? I think for us, We are so lucky because we have this structure where we really have experts embedded in the different parts of the company that we can use that as our greatest strength to both really be innovative, but also see, you know, where do we have potential risks or where might we be needing to really double down? So you mentioned some of the work that we've been doing in our real estate portfolio. So there we have been very focused on a couple of areas where I think we're doing some really innovative work. One of which you just referred to is food waste. So we, of course, operate cafes for our employees. We're very lucky. We get to have, you know, if we want three meals a day at work. And we really want to make sure that we're doing that in an incredibly responsible way. And so we've been focused on composting, recycling, But also, we really wanted to think about how do we prevent food waste in what we call the pre-consumer setting, you know, and how we're actually preparing food in the kitchen. So our food team has partnered with this great technology company, and I think this is another great example of sort of using technology to drive sustainability benefit. This great technology company called LeanPath, they're based up in Oregon, and they have a system that brings a scale and a camera into the kitchen And then our chefs will weigh and take pictures of the food waste that's happening in the kitchen so they can identify where are items expiring or where are we seeing that we're not utilizing as much as we could of a vegetable or of a meat. 
And then they can do better menu planning. They can do better purchasing. And so through this tool, we avoided 1.5 million pounds of food waste just last year. And we haven't even deployed it yet across our full global fleet of cafes. So really incredible opportunity. And we're now even thinking about how could we potentially take that whole set of images that we have that have been taken by lane path and then apply machine learning to get even deeper insights into how we could optimize. So that's a tremendously, I think, innovative space. And then also you mentioned healthy materials. So we have had a, a very longstanding focus on thinking about, you know, how do we build healthy, happy places for our employees? How do we build places where our employees will really thrive and be at their best? And so a piece of that for us has always been thinking about what materials are we built, bringing into our built environment, you know, and I think sometimes people are surprised to learn that actually some of the stuff that, you know, we bring inside, it can be nasty, it can have formaldehyde and other chemicals in it. And so our team has been thinking about how do we get the healthiest materials possible into our offices? So again, we've come up with a technology solution and we've built this tool called Portico uh, with a partner called the Healthy Building Network. And Portico enables our building project teams to collaborate with one another on getting the best information possible about what's in the stuff we're bringing into our offices, whether that's furniture or paint or carpet. And then it's also a tool through which we can inquire with our suppliers to tell us, hey, what's in this stuff so we can be making the most informed decisions. And so we've now used this tool in over 200 projects around the world and have built out a tremendous database of information. And then last year, we brought in several new partners, Harvard and Durst and Perkins and Wills, major developers, to think about how do we make this tool accessible to everyone. And so that's what we're working on now. That's amazing. I remember when I first heard about this a few years ago, you know, it was living in a Google sheet online, right? And to think that that data has now transferred into a usable tool that folks are actually implementing is incredible. Yeah. Before diving, finishing up here, I really want to highlight on, you know, I think some of the things you've talked about more publicly recently and, you know, the concept of the circular economy and how it's going to be important to sustainability in the long run. And obviously completely agree with you, but I really want to hear how you think that applies to the tech sector, right? You're living in Silicon Valley. You're surrounded by some of the most innovative companies in the world. You know, how do you see not just the companies, but even the VCs and others adopting the concept of the circular economy and sort of trying to implement that in their, their own operations? Yeah, so this is a topic that I've become really passionate about and, and kind of the way that I think about the circular economy fundamentally is, you know, we've had this model since the industrial revolution in which we take something out of the ground, we burn it for fuel or we turn it into a product and then it ultimately gets thrown away or it gets, you know, emitted into the atmosphere. And that, you know, this is not a sustainable path that we can follow. You know, I really like some work that has been done by a, a local NGO here, the Global Footprint Network. You know, they every year calculate Earth Overshoot Day, which is essentially when have we exhausted our natural resources budget for the year. And, and lately it's been falling in August, which wow. basically means that for the rest of the year, we're operating in a deficit. We're using natural resources that can't be replenished. We're emitting carbon into the atmosphere that can't be reabsorbed. So basically we need 1.7 Earths to continue to operate just at the level of capacity we are at today. And then you think about how much growth that we anticipate in the future, and it's truly an unsustainable model. So I'm really interested in, you know, how do we turn that on its head? And I think that's really what the circular economy offers. It's a completely new solution where we don't think about this linear approach, but rather we think about 
how do you take a more restorative and regenerative perspective on the use of natural resources on how we design our systems? And I think that there is a huge role for business to play in this. And particularly, I think there's a tremendous role for technology. And we just published a paper a few weeks ago with the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, which is a great NGO out in the UK that we do a lot of work with on the circular economy. And in this paper, we started to look at this topic of what is the role of technology, particularly in a more circular city? You know, as your listeners, I'm sure know, know, there's a lot of interest right now in the city scale of how can cities really be innovative in this space? And we really see the city scale as also being really interesting from a circular economy perspective, since we have more people living in cities all the time. We now have more people globally living in cities than not. So we wrote this paper that really looks at some of the technologies that we already have today at Google that can help to drive more circular cities. So that's everything from the work that we've been doing through a tool called Project Sunroof. It's a tool that we launched a couple of years ago that enables any homeowner in the U.S. and also in Germany to go in, type in your address, see if your roof is a good candidate for solar, and then how much could you save and take the next step to connect with a solar developer. And that tool also enables whole communities to assess their solar potential. So you can see a whole city, they have the ability now to use that tool to think about how can they use a more renewable source of power to power their city. And we also talk in that paper about the work we've been doing around air quality at the community scale. So we have a team that's working on this project Airview, which is a partnership with the Environmental Defense Fund, with EDF, and a technology company here in the Bay Area called Aquama. And what we've been doing is attaching air quality sensors to our Street View cars. You know, these are those oh, yeah. kind of fun-looking Google cars. You know, that drive around. They create Google Maps. Well, also we can attach these air quality sensors so they can be sensing air quality on a street by street basis. And so over wow. the summer we released this data set that was looking at air quality in Oakland. And through the maps that EDF did that showed this data, you could see from street to street how air quality was changing, how people getting you know, off the Bay Bridge or onto Interstate 80 was impacting air quality at the community level and really giving people tools to try and build more healthy communities. So we see a really tremendous role for technology in driving the circular cities of the future. That's amazing. So we've had quite a conversation. So first of all, thank you. And I always ask sort of a final question to folks. When you look back at your career, obviously already established a very solid career and you've got a long way to go going forward. But if you went and sat down with yourself coming out of high school or even college, what advice would you give yourself? I always like to tell folks that I think it's so important to to follow your passion. You know, I feel so lucky that every day I've had the chance to get up and go to work and really work on something that I'm passionate about. And to do an incredible amount of learning through my work, obviously, I feel really grateful for the great education I received, but I have learned so much from the incredible people that I've gotten to work with over the years, from consulting with experts, from reading as much as I can. I'm a a big fan of really taking the time to figure out what you're passionate about and then really digging in and taking the chance to learn and then making sure that, you know, if you're not as excited about what you're doing, you know, finding your next challenge and your next opportunity. That's it. Well, thank you, Kate, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great to be with you. Look forward to seeing you next time I'm out out west. Sounds great. Looking forward to it. Thank you to Kate Brandt for joining us. Once again, go to environment.google to keep up to speed on the amazing work that they've got going on. And I would send a special thanks out to our producers, Emily Connor and Lauren Glickman. 
The show wouldn't be possible without them. Please go to cleancapital.com if you have ideas for future episodes. And of course, please leave us a five-star rating wherever you hear your podcasts. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you in the future. Thanks.